This past Friday, uh, there was a funeral of Dr. Reverend Billy Graham. And uh, I, I felt like I had to say something and not just sort of let that event of his dying and going to be with the Lord and then the stuff that was happening this past week. Don't, don't just let it go because as those of you who know me, at least to some degree, you know that uh, Billy Graham was instrumental in my salvation when I was a young teenager. I, I was 13 when, when uh, my dad said, we're going to the Billy Graham crusade at Milwaukee County Stadium, and so we went. And uh, I don't know which day of the week that was, but when he was preaching on John 3.16, I felt compelled. They were singing, Just As I Am. Uh, that's a song that is like at all of his crusades to have people come forward. And I went down on the baseball field and stood there on second base thinking about, uh, who was it, Paul Molitor, I think, was uh, the second baseman at the time. And uh, I was thinking, Paul Molitor stands here, you know. And, uh, but more importantly than that, uh, God used Billy Graham to bring me salvation, bring to me his salvation. And so we're going to miss him. And, you know, when I heard that he died, I thought, and he's finally going to see the Savior face to face that he'd been talking about all these decades. And uh, just what a wonderful, glorious moment that must have been for him. And to see his family members that have gone before him and all that kind of stuff. So I just, I just felt like I had to. It has nothing to do with what I'm going to talk about. Well, maybe you can connect the dots, but that's not why I share it. Um, but another event happened, actually, eight days ago uh, here at Faith Church. We had the Parent Summit, and uh, uh, we were a satellite site for the summit where uh, we had different speakers piped in here from Woodlands Church in Stevens Point uh, come and uh, teach us about parenting, and I heard it was a great great event. I wasn't here. I, was, I had a pre-planned trip that I was gone to, but my wife came, and she said it was absolutely wonderful. Just great things. She was showing me her notes, you know, all the notes she was taking. Like, like one tidbit, which I thought was great, was you, you have to give your kids nine compliments to one correction. And you just think about how many times we correct our kids and correct our kids and correct our kids. And are we in tune enough to say, well, how, how much have I been complimenting my children as well? And the, the nine to one ratio, this guy had some sort of study that if your kids are going to know that you're not mad at them or that you don't like them very much, that that's kind of the ratio that he put out there. Uh, another uh, teacher was teaching on how to help your kids have a defense for themselves in our world around the truth of Jesus and what he means to them in their lives and how to kind of walk that in our world today. And uh, you know, I don't need to relive the whole summit with you, but the bottom line is uh, it was just a great event. It was a great event. I think over 70 of you were here, and, uh, and I think it was, you know, I think this is our second year we've done it. No doubt we'll do it next year as well, and uh, just a fantastic time. Speaking of parenting, by the way, I just want to give a little shout-out to what's starting today, and if you miss it today, you can certainly go another time. It's our grace-based parenting class that we're offering it's a 10-week class, so if you don't go today, it's only a nine-week class, if you think about it. But um, it's in the, what we call the fishbowl, room 17, right across the hall over here. And the 10 bucks is for the materials. I think it's a book that you get that we're go you're going through. So uh, I've heard it's a wonderful class. If I wasn't in here, I'd probably be in there. So if you want to grow in your parenting skills, which I think if you are a parent, we should always be sort of trying to grow, trying to learn 
trying to develop what it means to be a great parent, uh, I'm going to suggest that you start next week and, and take that class uh, uh, and, and, and grow. And uh, I mean, now more than ever in our world, really, um, the family, the family unit, I think is under attack. I think, I think parenting is extremely challenging in our day and age. I think to help ground our kids in you know, what it means to be healthy, a, a, a good self-understanding, a good, a good understanding of how they fit in our world, I think today more than ever we need the help that we, that we can get. So I thought this morning, I find it peculiar, maybe even of God, that as we continue our series entitled uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, starring David, a man after God's own heart, that we would actually have an opportunity to go to the Scriptures and mine from them, even this morning, uh, in a sense have our own little parent summit here. Because the very next section that we're going to in 2 Samuel is all about how David did in his parenting or the lack of skill that maybe he had in his ability to parent. If you think about 2 Samuel, the book itself, as we've just kind of been skipping a stone through different chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel is all about the reign of David as the king of Israel. And uh, the whole book is really about David. Even when other characters are talked about, it's really a story about David's life and what it meant to be the king. All throughout 2 Samuel, you'll see this theme that runs through it. It's where God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble. And you see throughout the book how David kind of rises up in his pride, and then he becomes humble. And then he rises up in his pride, and then he becomes humble. And, and, and a couple of weeks ago, when I was sharing with you about David and Bathsheba, really that was a time when when David rose up in his pride and thought, oh, look at her, I think I can have her. Bring her to me. And sure enough, he, he, uh, he slept with Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, ends up having Uriah killed. I don't need to re-preach this to you. Uh, but bottom line is, it was his pride that got him there. But then in the next chapter, chapter uh, 2 Samuel chapter 12, uh, Pastor Brian last week brought to you how God brought Nathan the prophet to David to say, hey, listen, you sinned, and immediately you saw that David was humble. You saw that David humbled himself before the Lord. He was repentant. He felt so bad about it. And yet God had anointed David as the king of Israel. And even though God forgave David of his sin, God uh, did not count it against him, David still had to live with the consequences of his choices. God gave David what those consequences would be. Through the prophet Nathan, he highlighted to David, this is some of the struggles you're going to face now that you've made those sinful choices in your life. And one of those consequences, Nathan the prophet brought the word of God to David. If you go with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 11, 2 Samuel 12 and verse 11 this is what the Lord says to David. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. And in the very next chapter, 2 Samuel 13, we see how this evil rose up in David's household. David was known as a great warrior. David was known as a great king. David was popular. He was, he was a man after God's own heart. 
And yet when we get to 2 Samuel 13, we'll see that God, through His Word, will reveal to us some of David's flaws. These flaws show up clearly in his lack of ability to lead in his household. His lack of ability to be a father to his children. Although by this time his children were grown, uh, this morning we're going to see three flaws that David had in raising his kids. The natural consequences that he had to face now that his kids were adults. And this morning, I hope that the Spirit of God will speak to every one of us in this room. As I was wrestling through the text and evaluating the text and studying the text and, and trying to figure out what the Lord has for us this morning, I, I, I couldn't help but think, but Lord, there's some people who aren't parents right now. There's some people who are young, you know, they're not even thinking about parenting. They're not even thinking about marriage. Like, Lord, how would you use this to help them? And maybe the Spirit of God will stir in your hearts that maybe how you've been affected by your parents, possibly. Uh, others are, are all done having kids, and they're, they're, the kids are out of the house. Maybe they're, they're grandparents. Lord, how would you use this text for them? And, and maybe, just maybe, God might use it through His Spirit to speak to your hearts, to help maybe bring healing for some of the things that you've done as parents, maybe even years ago. Maybe, I don't know, I don't want to speak for the Spirit of God in this place for you, but I just want to bring to you the Word of God. And as we go to the Word of God, the first family flaw that I see in David is that David was disconnected from his kids. David was disconnected from his kids. He was so preoccupied with work. He was, in many ways, an absentee dad. Uh, we pick up the story with David fighting the Ammonites. He was such a great warrior. Let's pick up how he beat the Ammonites if we go to 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 29. It says this, So David gathered all the people, that would be the army, the Israelite army, and went to Rabbah, fought against it, and captured it. Now, it's such a short little verse, but there's a lot there. Because you might recall a couple weeks ago when David was on the rooftop and he saw Bathsheba and, and uh, he did what he did with Bathsheba, what was happening at that time is his army under the command of Joab was off to Rabbah. And they were fighting the Ammonites. And they were fighting them in chapter uh, 11 and then again in, here in chapter 12. And this is a, a long battle that it seems like the Israelites are not able to actually beat the Ammonites. But then finally David, you know, leaves his castle, goes over to Rabbah, takes control, takes his leadership skills, his military prowess, and boom, they capture the city. They beat him. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold. And, it was a precious stone, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it and set them under, or that means enslaved them to, saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln, which means they were slaves. They were to do the work that slaves would do for the nation of Israel. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. 
Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. I kind of picture, you know, they're returning to Jerusalem. The victorious king warrior David did it, yes. And, you know, he's riding his chariot nice and high, and he's got the confetti falling on him. No, no confetti. It wasn't back then. But, you know, the picture and the, the headlines is like, you know, warrior king wins again. You know, our king is amazing. We love our king. That's the picture I have in my mind when they come back to Jerusalem. But then in his home, in his household, there was a totally different picture. And we pick up on it here in chapter 13 and verse 1. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. So we've got Absalom and Tamar, uh, the son and daughter of David, under one wife. And then under another wife, we have Amnon, who is in love with his half-sister. Over and over again, we see David as having huge success, winning victory after victory. But back at home, things were different. His children had his riches, but it doesn't seem like they had David's heart. He was emotionally disconnected to them. He, they didn't have his attention. David had so many responsibilities that he had to take care of as a king. And therefore, he was disconnected emotionally with the well-being of his children. Look at verse 2. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. For she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. So Jonadab is not only his good buddy, it's his cousin as well. And he said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Actually, that's not true. He actually wasn't in love with her. He was in lust for her. There's a big difference between love and lust. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple, a, a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. So Amnon's faking it, but he is depressed. I mean, Jonadab saw something's not right with him. David comes in, sees that he's not doing quite well, very well, and he never inquires. He, you know, Amnon asks the question, Hey, you know, I want Tamar to come and feed me. And David doesn't lean into that. David doesn't... David doesn't sort of say, so what's wrong? I mean, why are you not feeling well? What's going on in your heart? You know, let me help, help me to understand where you're at emotionally. He doesn't do any of that. It's like he kind of has this real quick fix. Oh, good, I don't have to really deal with it. So it says in verse 7, Then David sent to the house of, for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother uh, uh, Amnon's house and prepare food for him. It feels like it's just kind of like a quick fix. He wants Tamar? Okay, good, she can go help him out. Well, then look what happens down in verse 10. And Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. 
But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where would I go to get rid of my reproach? As for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. Now, by the way, I don't think that she actually thought David would not withhold her from him. I just think it was trying to divert him, trying to get him off his game, trying to move away from this terrible moment. However, Amnon would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. And Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred which he had hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. Tamar was Amnon's half-sister. He should have had an emotional connection to her. He should have He should have loved her with a purity of love like a brother and a sister. Instead, he had this twisted lust for her. He had zero emotional connection with her, and he violated her brutally. You know, when a parent is not connected emotionally with their children, the children run the risk of emotional disconnection with each other. And in extreme cases, this is actually what could happen. It's sick and it's twisted. The ability to do well in relationships, the ability to be in tune with another person's heart, the ability to have empathy, to have a heart connection with another person, is something that we are not born with. It's called emotional intelligence. Emotional intelligence is a learned behavior. Emotional intelligence is a learned behavior. We don't just automatically have it. And we learn it, first and foremost, from our parents, from the home environment. You know, we we can get so busy winning the world. You know, we can get so busy um, working toward that next promotion. We can get so busy trying to make just a little bit more, climbing the ladder of success, fighting the battles that we fight, making sure we have our own social connections. But if we don't win the battle for the hearts of our kids at home, they can become emotionally disconnected with others. They'll struggle with this. So parents, we've got to give them our attention. And back to the parents summit, another note that Jill wrote down, the best thing that we can give to our kids is one-on-one attention. Undivided attention to our kids. It's the best thing for their emotional well-being where we're not distracted by the things around us. Speaking of distractions, what do you say we... Why do you say we turn off the TV? <laughs> How about this? Let's, let's do this old-fashioned thing called a board game. How about if we play a board game together? How about if we go on a walk? You know, you got to walk the dog anyway. Go ahead and walk the dog with your kid, you know. Here's, here's something that I, I'm an advocate of. Let's make sure that we do this good old-fashioned do dinner together at night. You know where we sit around the table and actually eat supper with one another 
And by the way, let's not have the TV on in the background while we're having dinner together. You know what? When we have dinner together at the Vance family, we call the dinner table the no phone zone. (laughs) No phones at the table. No electronics at the table. And by the way, I'm speaking to myself because I can be one of the culprits. Wait, I just got to check one more thing. I just got to make sure I respond. One more thing. I just got to do one more quick thing. No, put the phones away and have dinner together. (laughs) What am I getting at here? I'm getting at we've got to be intentional. Intentional about emotionally connecting with our children. A second family flaw that I saw in David was David was passive toward his kids. Passive. You know, (laughs) non-confrontational. Looks like David was not very firm with his kids. Great as a warrior, you know, against the enemies, but uh, for his children, seems like he didn't want to ever cross them growing up. (laughs) After David heard about this atrocity with Amnon and Tamar, Look at how he responded to it, verse 21. Now, when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. That's it. That's his response. I'm really mad. He never confronted Amnon. He never consoled Tamar. He just was really angry. Doesn't seem to indicate he did anything You know, when we see something that's wrong, do we address it? (laughs) Honestly, I've, I've dropped the ball on this one. I was, you know, going through the text, thinking about my own life. I thought, oh, boy, I can think of a time or two or three or four or five or many when uh, something had to be addressed and I was passive about it. Like, um, like Brandon, I'll, Brandon, my son, who's 26 now, I remember when he was in middle school. Uh, he was, we were in Illinois at the time. I was pastoring a church down in Illinois. And he was in the youth group. And for some reason, I was there that evening. And their, their small groups kind of went off into their different classrooms. And Brandon's little small group of middle school boys was in one of the classrooms. And I happened to just kind of go and sort of so they can't see me look through the window and sort of see what's going on. And I remember the teacher there, his name was Jerry. He was up in front and he was talking and the boys were just sitting there and I could kind of see they were sort of talking. I wasn't sure what they were doing. And then Jerry comes around and he takes the top of Brandon's head and his shoulder, and this wasn't any kind of demonstration, he was mad, and he literally pushed Brandon down underneath the table. Like physically forced him to go underneath the table. What would you do? Well, I can tell you I became very angry. I was watching through the window. I became very angry. What would you do? You'd probably like open up the door and say, hey, what's going on in here? You know, hey, what happened? What's going on? What's up? You know what I did? I walked away. I didn't do anything. I remember talking to Brandon about it. But I didn't address Jerry. I didn't even go to the youth pastor. And I was the senior pastor. I didn't even go to the youth pastor in the moment. (laughs) Yeah. 
You know, to this day, and it wasn't just that event, but it was that event and a couple of others, maybe not as big of an injustice as that, but to this day, again, Brandon's 26, he looks back on his youth group days, and he doesn't look on them fondly. He, He doesn't look back on his youth group days and say, that was really a good experience for me. Sadly, he doesn't have those kinds of memories. By the way, this isn't even in my notes, but those of you who work with our youth, I trust you. I trust you, but you have a huge opportunity to make a positive impact on our young people, and I commend you for it. Well, uh, passivity. Passivity in defending our kids when we have to defend them. Passivity when we have to address our kids when they've done something wrong. If we remain passive, this there's a good chance that this is what's bound to happen. I think passivity fuels anger. Passivity fuels anger. Look at verse 22. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon either, good or bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shears in Baal-hazar, Uh, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. So two full years, Absalom had suppressed his anger. For two full years, that anger was just festering below the surface. That anger was just stewing, where at just the right time, he could unleash it. And it seems like he's figuring out this just might be the time. When Jill and I lived in Arizona, so now you got to move our kids, our oldest kids' ages back from you know, teenagers and and a little below, all the way down to when Brandon was about five and Allison was about two. And uh, we were in the kitchen in our home in Arizona, and uh, we were making taco pie. Ever make taco pie? Taco pie is where you take the, the dough, it's like a corn crust, a dough, and you put it in a pie pan, and, uh, and you mash it down all the way around the sides, and then you bake the pie crust, and then you uh, do the brown, you know, brown some ground beef, and you uh, add the taco spices, and you're cutting up your tomatoes, and your, your lettuce. Well, I don't need to tell you how to make it all, but, you know, taco pie. Well, so we turn on the oven to, to bake the crust, and we put this pie dough, uh, this corn dough, in a glass pie pan. Tracking with me? Glass pie pan. Set it up on the stove until, until the oven is hot enough, and then we turn on the stove to heat the meat, to brown the ground beef. And so, uh, you know, once it starts sizzling, I'll start dicing up the ground beef. So Jill's over doing whatever she's doing. I go over by, by, by Allison, who's in the high chair. Brandon is off somewhere, I don't know, in the house. And we're kind of just doing our own thing. I'm kind of waiting to hear the meat start to sizzle. When all of a sudden, boom, this explosion happened. And I turn around. And the pie pan, the glass pie pan, had exploded. I had accidentally turned on the stove underneath the glass pie pan rather than the stove underneath the meat, the the pan where the meat was, and it heated up, and with the cold dough on top and the heat on the bottom, the heat got trapped, and that pie pan literally exploded. And I am not exaggerating when I say shards of glass were sticking out of the linoleum on the ground. I mean, it was like an explosion, an explosion. It was craziness, right? 
I thought, if I had been in tune with the fact that that pan was heating up, that glass pie pan was heating up, I could have easily turned down the heat and turned up the heat where the meat was. I could have easily turned down that heat, but I was not in tune with that heat. Had David been in tune with the heat of the anger heating up in Absalom, he could have addressed Amnon. He could have carried out his justice uh, on Amnon. Actually, King David, King David was the king. He was like the ultimate law keeper in Israel. And as the ultimate law keeper, he would have known uh, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 17 that uh, Amnon at least, at minimally, should have been exiled from Israel for what he did. And probably because he raped his, his sister, he should have been executed. And had he carried out justice, Absalom would have felt vindicated. The temperature of Absalom's anger would have been turned down. And he would have been set free from his need to feel like he had to have revenge for his sister. So parents, are we actively involved in the discipline and instruction of our kids? Or are we somewhat passive when it comes to this. How's the anger temperature in the home? We can kind of monitor that, you know? Does our kids seem to be angry all the time, sort of mad all the time? Do they have a sense of hatred for one thing or another? Are they mean to each other? If we, ma if we, if we measure the, the heat of the anger in the home, we must address it. Otherwise, it could explode. Well, one more thing. David didn't lean into what he felt was wrong. David didn't lean into what he felt was wrong. See, Absalom manipulates his dad now, and, uh, and David had a hunch something was going on. Something's not right here. But instead of leaning toward it, he leaned away from it. Look at verse 24. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold now, your servant has sheep shears. Please, let the king and his servants go with, with your servant. By the way, the sheep shear is coming and the she shearing of the sheep. Big, huge festival. Like cutting off the wool. We're going to make a big, huge crop here of wool. It's going to be fun. It's a big, huge festivity. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we'll be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon Go with us. Now, here's where David's little antenna went up. Wait, you're inviting all of my sons, and for some reason you, you pick out Amnon. Like, you wanna, you want, you're specifically asking that Amnon is there, and he could tell something's not quite right. I mean, look at what it says here as the verse continues. And the king said to him, why should he go with you? Something's not right. But instead of leaning into it, David leans away from it. But when Absalom urged him, he, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. <laughs> something's not right. If we've got a hunch that something's not right, don't lean away from it. Lean toward it. Trust our instincts. You know, we may be wrong. <laughs> we may be wrong. You know, something doesn't feel quite right. I might be wrong, but 
At least we investigated. At least we looked into things. See, our inclination often is, well, if we ignore it, it'll go away. Reality is, rarely, almost never does it go away. Almost never. Our inclination is, eh, you know, it's probably nothing. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's something. It's something. You've got to lean toward it, not away from it. Here's the truth. If we don't address it, if we don't lean toward it, here's a truth that will happen. The reality is sin kills. Sin kills. If we don't address it, sin kills our connection. If something is wrong, and we're sensing something's wrong, sin kills love. Sin kills the truth. Lean into it, not away from it. For David's family, the sin of bitterness and anger and revenge killed one of his sons. Look at verse 28. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have not I myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. He did it. He carried out a pre-planned assassination. Like an open wound that's not cleansed, Absalom, Absalom let his heart get infected with hatred and a lust for revenge. Absalom carried out evil in David's household. Had David leaned into what was wrong, what he just sensed was wrong, you could tell it, there may have been a different outcome. And then look what happens at the end of verse 29. At the end of verse 29, then all the king's sons arose and each mounted his mule and fled. All the king's sons ran away. We're not going to connect emotionally here. No way. We're not going to be warriors for each other. They were cowards. They were passive. They leaned away in a big way. Absalom got away with murder. Our kids, you know, I don't expect any of them will do anything that atrocious. But what do we let our kids get away with? What are we passive about, you know? Like, like kids that are, well, they're talking mean to their mom. Let them get away with that? How about kids that are mean to one another? We let them get away with it? How about talking back or always having to have the last word? What, what do we let our kids get away with? What are we passive about? Because David was an absentee dad. Because he was passive in his training up of his kids. Because he refused to be firm with them when firmness was needed. Because he didn't lean toward the tension, but he leaned away from it. As his kids grew up, they became dysfunctional. Amnon, brutalizing, 
his half-sister Tamar. Brothers and cousins conniving and manipulating, yes, even committing murder. Like David, like David, we may look pretty good to the world around us. But are we winning the battles at home? Are we winning the battles behind closed doors? Are we winning the battles with our family relationships? Here's the reality. None of us are perfect parents. None of us are perfect people. (laughs) Uh, Maybe when we hear a message like this, we can kind of feel like, oh my goodness, man, he's just beating me up with this. Come on. I feel like a failure. (laughs) Well, we've all failed. We've all fallen short in many ways. Here's the truth that I want us to hang on to. Our God is a God of second chances. Our God says, let's start today and let's go forward with what I want for your life. He is a God who can redeem a bad situation and make it good. He is the one who can turn things around for us. He wants to have His victory in our lives. See, it's our God who calls Himself our Father. Our Father. He is the perfect parent. Here's another quote from the Parent Summit, which I really liked. Josh Straub said, We aren't supposed to be perfect, but follow a God who is. It is God our Father who endlessly whispers to us, I love you. I love you. No matter what, I love you, and I'm here for you. Our God is a God who doesn't lean away from us. He always leans toward us. He's always there to bring about just little nudges, little corrections along the way. Like, for instance, he might just give us a little reprove, you know, just a little bit of a a training that says, hey, I just want to help you to, to grow in what I want for your life. And for you parents, this is just an opportunity for you to, to grow in how much I love you and how I give you second chances. And, and you can give your kids second chances and, and, and we can move forward from here. Sometimes God brings a scourging into our lives where it's like, man, I feel uncomfortable. Like, why am I going through this difficult time? And God says, I'm doing this to bring about, as he says in Hebrews 12, 11, I'm doing this to bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness in your life. Uh, Discipline, when it happens, it's not always pleasant. But afterwards, this is what he's trying to produce in us. God, our Father, is not disconnected from us emotionally. He's very connected to us emotionally. And he's not passive in his involvement in our lives. God, our Heavenly Father, is forever leaning toward us and not away from us. The perfect example of a perfect parent is not found in any of us, but it's found in our perfect Heavenly Father. Here's how we grow as parents. Here's how we grow as people. We come before the Lord and we say, Lord, I I need your wisdom. Lord, I need your help. Lord, I need to grow and, and not quite sure how to do it, so so lead me. It's where we submit ourselves to God and we say, God, lead me in your way everlasting. God, lead me. And the way that we connect with God, the way that we say, God, I want you to reign in my life, is where we start by realizing, okay, I'm not 
perfect, but you are. You are perfect, God. And so I just surrender my life to you. The way that we grow as a person and as a parent, first and foremost, is to acknowledge God 